This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. We're back talking about Season 2 of Penny Dreadful, Episode 6, Glorious Horrors. Welcome back, Penny Faithful. We're talking about Season 2, Episode 6 of Penny Dreadful Glorious Horrors. I'm one of your hosts again, Derek. Hello there, fellow Glorious Horrors. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I am one of your other hosts, John. Welcome back to this Episode 6 of Penny Dreadful. Yeah, the morning after episode, I think we'll call it. Yes, this is most definitely (laughs) a post-coital morning after. Mm -hmm. We have Breakfast, blood, and blusher. Um, yes, Lily cooking up a breakfast for old Victor. Um, a bit of blood and, dare I say it, a disturbing haircut from Evelyn on some alchem. Mm-hmm. And Angelique applying blusher and um, foundation uh, to set herself up for the day. She has been renewed and invigorated with the supportive words of Dorian Mm -hmm. and, of course, a good old session at night. Definitely. Yes, absolutely. Let's get into our discussion about this episode. As always, going to do short discussions about these episodes of Penny Dreadful. Uh, So episode six of Penny Dreadful season two is directed by James Hawes. This is the final episode that James directed for Penny Dreadful. What a way to go out uh, in this episode, really. Um, Recently, he's directed three episodes of the TV show Snowpiercer which is finally coming out in May of this year uh, a show that uh, was originally delayed it was uh, created about three years ago I think Uh, they started filming the first season and then it got renewed for a second season moved networks uh, got got held back for these second season and for some reshoots so uh, that show is eventually coming out this year but really excited to see what the final product is especially if James Halls is involved yes definitely definitely Uh, the episode was written once again by showrunner John Logan. Are you bored of me saying that yet? No, no, it's it's good. It's good because, you know, just to the idea that this is in many respects um a singular vision. Mm-hmm. Um it, it, I think it's quite important. I I do know other writers do come on board, season but three, yeah. yeah, for season 3, but certainly, you know, it, it's an interesting uh element here. A bit like with Watchmen, a series that we covered were Damon Lindelof, even though there was a writer's room, you know, he very much was involved in every episode mm-hmm. um, in terms of the 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 script for the TV show. Yeah. But it's um, not very often we get a show that, that has just one run, one writer that, that takes on board the entire show. Uh, so it's quite interesting seeing this one person's vision uh, being put on screen. Uh, and again, he's going to be back for uh, Penny Dreadful yeah. City of Angels. I mean, you do wonder whether he had a writing room himself, mm. um, at least to bounce the ideas off or just, you know, surely there was uh, some group of people um, that he bounced the ideas off yeah. uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with the summary for this episode of Penny Dreadful Season 2, Episode 6, Glorious Horrors? Sure. After spending the night with Madame Carly, Sir Malcolm returns home to learn that his wife has taken her own life. His reaction, however, is not what you would expect. Mm -mm. Everyone agrees that he is acting strangely and clearly is not himself. 
Ethan gets a visit from the sole survivor of the attack at the Mariner's Inn, who makes it clear that he will not give up and will continue to pursue him. Meanwhile, Dorian Gray throws a ball, a coming-out party for Angelique, and invites Vanessa and Victor Frankenstein. Lily attends as well, and is the belle of the ball, drawing a good deal of attention from Dorian, which upsets both Angelique and Victor. Mm -hmm. Vanessa attends alone, but has an encounter, real or imagined, with Mrs. Poole's daughters. Meanwhile, Ethan, who declined attending the ball with Vanessa, turns to Sembene to help him with what will happen that evening. Mm -hmm. Yes. Full moon time. It is. (laughs) Ho! <laughs> yes, we don't actually get uh, much howling at the moon from uh, from Ethan, but we do get uh, his transformation in this episode once again. They do a great job. I think I mentioned back at the end of season one, the idea of keeping back him as a werewolf and then just revealing it for a very quick moment uh, was a really good choice. And in this episode particularly, once again... We have some fantastic makeup uh, for the character and, and for the creation of the wolf inside Ethan. And they do a great job of lighting it and positioning uh, this creature so that it doesn't look out of place in this world, I suppose. Um, it can happen. I think my joke uh, back at the time was it could come off a little bit teen wolf if you do it the wrong way. So yeah. they have certainly done it the right way. And there's a great moment that we'll talk about next episode. Uh, but for this episode, John, what's your big moment for season two, episode six? Not another bloody ball. <laughs> no, um, very it, bloody ball, it yeah. is a very bloody ball. It is, um, it's the ball, mm-hmm. um, for sure. I absolutely love this. Um, and dare I say it, I love a good Victorian ball. Um, it's only in watching this that I, uh, came to understand that because I, I absolutely love the, a similar ball and social gathering in an ideal husband, uh, the oh, yeah. movie yeah. again, based off a, um, a play by Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. Um, so a nice little connection here for, 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 for me, uh, for sure. Um, <laughs> and Dorian, and course, it was, yeah. yes. And the writer of the book, Dorian Gray. Yeah. And yeah, a, a huge literary giant uh, in this Victorian period. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I came to understand that I, I love the idea of this ball, this social gathering as a vehicle for social interaction and mm-hmm. observation of, of people. Uh, I think Mr. Lyle talks about the rules of the game, and I, that's what is so um, great about these Victorian balls, is that there is um, a decadence to it, yet they're also moral uh, and uh, about it. And, and there are... Yeah. The, the you know it, it's the social standing it's the social networking uh, but it, it it's also really well uh, observed and I just think it was uh, fantastic um you know there are many great interactions in uh, these scenes at Dorian Gray's home uh, for sure mm-hmm. but between with and sort of all predicated on the entrance you know. Um, to begin with, of Dorian and Angelique, mm-hmm. there is Miss Poole, or Evelyn Poole's daughter, Hecate, yep. as well. Victor and Lily arriving, Vanessa arriving alone, uh, which is, in a sense, its own statement as she's not with a male escort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the the reveal of Malcolm and Evelyn as uh, a couple, uh, and so soon after his mm-hmm. wife's death. A de-bearded Malcolm as well. A, yes, indeed. <laughs> a, a, a smooth as a baby bottom mm-hmm. uh, Sir Malcolm here. Yes. 
But uh, one that I really want to pick up on is just um, is Mr. Lyle with with Miss Poole here. Um, you know, they really don't like one another, and I think okay. that's the other element of the, the observation here, um, that it's all smiles, bright eyes, this outward appearance of of knowing one another. But when they, they don't, it, it's the quips that they make, the, the sleight of hand that they do. Uh, where Mr. Lyle talks about, you know, being schooled in the social graces, mm-hmm. and uh, Hecate goes, what social graces? Such as mendacity and betrayal, you know, as, as a slight towards Mr. Lyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes, I don't know what games you're playing, but watching your scales catch the light as you coil um, is something that he he really likes. And I just love this tone, you know. Uh, I think, though, we do learn here a bit more that she has a game that she's playing herself mm-hmm. uh, and that maybe one that her own mother, Evelyn Poole, is unaware of. Um, so I, I, I really like this, uh, the idea that um, the, the queen of the coven, Evelyn Poole, has her enemies from her own daughters here. But I think also with Hecate and Mr. Lyle, what we have is uh, this, this centering around Vanessa Mm -hmm. where Mr. Lyle um, is actually really uh, quite protective uh, of her. And uh, I, I really kind of like that. You know, he talks about the dizzying panorama and Vanessa says all the toys in the box scattered around the, the floor. But he says, I must escort you home. You know, there are too many complications here. Mm-hmm. You're not safe. And you don't know the rules. Yeah. And, and like we, echo- echoing what Vanessa said to him about uh, her not having a love life effectively, saying that she thinks she knows the rules but doesn't want to play the game anymore and that's effectively how Lyle talks her out of leaving you know he's not only yeah yeah, exactly he's not only protective of her remember it's also possibly he feels like it will be her fault if anything happens to her so he's he's also uh, wants to do whatever he can to help save her because he doesn't want her to be in this situation possibly caused by himself so uh, he is he is very protective of her but he doesn't want it to be his fault no exactly um he he can see the growing danger within this uh within this ballroom before anybody else can because he knows having these four people in the room uh and and her fellow witches along with uh evelyn pool all being in the same place along with vanessa is not a good place to be absolutely and and it leads to this wonderful moment of the the masses dancing Mm. as um Hecate with her two sisters advancing towards Vanessa as Vanessa starts to get kind of disorientated hearing uh, murmurings and voices Mm -hmm. uh, around the room she understands um, that there is something there even as Malcolm and Evelyn walk in she senses this person entering into the room maybe it is to do with sensing um her past as well yeah, uh, yeah. up on uh ballantry moor with joan clayton yeah, yeah. and I, I thought that was really nice the ringing in her ears isn't as uh, as Ex- the arrival of evelyn and she doesn't know what that's a, why that's affecting her basically but um it, it's almost like a mask that's in front of her she can't recognize Madame Callie. Remember, she only saw her once at the at the seance, um, but she has heard of the relationship brewing between uh, Malcolm and, and uh, Evelyn Poole. Um, but it's like a mask, and then eventually it's lifted as that ringing goes. She goes, oh, of course I remember you. Right, fine, I, I do know who you are, but it's almost as if there's been some kind of 
convincing maybe from Evelyn Poole to trust her within that uh, within that ringing in her ears. I don't know whether it's some form of control that's emanating from from Evelyn at that point, but they do have a great again another great tete a tete between the two. Yeah, of them, it's a discuss. lovely pointed conversation mm-hmm. between the two of them. As John Logan is so good at writing, yes. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, you have the Vanessa saying he talks about you so often, and Evelyn turns around and says. And yet he talks of you so, so infrequently. Um, just really, really nice. Um, I look at you as a ward. Uh, yeah, <laughs> as, exactly. As goes, no, no, I'm more of a friend. Um, you know, uh, and then they talk about the approval. You know, maybe you should come over and visit. And I, I you know, um, I, I do feel your approval is what I want kind of thing. No, ab- absolutely. Um, it, very pointed. It yeah. is. It's, it's such a great uh, conversation here. But ultimately with... Um, mo- moving back to where she's at the the front of the the hall where the the string quartet are are mm-hmm. playing as the witches advance, and then you get the blood raining from above. Um, mm-hmm. It is so good, uh, and I certainly wasn't expecting that. You know, it, it's this idea of um, her being spellbound. I felt and yeah. um, by the advancing witches, I just loved how they pass through the dancers, at least um, Hecate in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought. That that was just so nicely done. It's you know, like they've got the ebb and the flow of an ocean uh, as the as the exact, dancers are passing. Yeah. You know, you know the band playing on and the dancers still dancing while this blood is falling. Like I have to say, you know, filming of that scene must have been so interesting to try and get everybody to ignore the blood that's falling all over your face. It might be going in your eyes. You see people covered head to toe. I think Malcolm particularly yeah. and Evelyn are covered head to toe in what looks like buckets of blood, like you know, yeah, Tyson Andronicus levels of blood yeah. in this scene. But to have all of these extras and all of these people here continuing about their movements for that couple of minutes uh, while Vanessa is seeing this the blood falling everywhere onto the paintings and everything in the room also the poor set designer must have been <laughs> yeah, kind of exactly. going right this has to be the final scene that we shoot in this room because everything's going to be destroyed after it you know? well that's it, it, it <laughs> and the costumes mm-hmm. and all of that certainly I mean I was trying to wonder what the blood signifies is it the blood of the people um, killed by this coven of witches in, in pursuit of it is it just symbolic of um, the the death uh, the evil of the witches mm-hmm. and their mass Master, yeah. more importantly so i i thought it was uh, really nicely done i did think um it was uh also maybe it's the precursor to it's raining men done <laughs> by um the string quartet of uh 18 18- 95 but instead it's it's raining blood i like it. um I like yes it. i thought so uh, i wonder how far it got up the charts uh introducing string quartet with it's raining it's blood, raining blood. Like on it. top of the gramophone <laughs> I love it. I love it. you know i yeah. thought that was really it, it but it was this whole ball um was just a great microcosm of mm-hmm the society and of all these characters. And I I thought it was really, really well done. And of course, what I thought was quite nice was that the grand ballroom, you know, with light, with people, with conversation, and it it was being intercut with the cellar at um, St. Malcolm's, you know, with the, the, the the lowly dark damp cellar, you Mm -hmm. know, invoking when, um, Mr. Fenton, played by Ollie Alexander, was tied up there with that 
the the darkness and and the moonlight you yeah. know as uh, ethan is asking sembene to sort of watch over him yeah exactly exactly uh, also intriguing obviously for that room you know itself we've seen that room multiple times in this show we've seen dorian gray holding court there and the first time we were introduced to him with the orgy that was going on around him and he looked totally bored by it we've seen it when vanessa visited the first time and of course we saw it when brona came to have her uh, pornographic photo shoot in that very same room uh, it looks vastly different when the doors are opened and there's a massive ball going on in the center of that room you know we, we even hear dorian kind of mentioning to uh to vanessa do you like the room the way it is you know so it's the same room that we've seen multiple times in the show but this time being used as this massive ballroom so much of the stuff is going on in the scene that the reveal of angelique to uh to everybody in high society as dorian's new partner is is a massive moment really for the two of them as they walk into the center of the room and and dance um but it turns shady pretty quickly it turns bad pretty quickly absolutely you know? we, we referenced it in the previous episode now that he has accomplished this goal of revealing angelique to society is he now moving on to his next conquest we have him dancing with lily an interesting interaction between the two of them dorian plays this really interestingly even for the audience because you're going does he know that lily is brona because he had quite a significant moment with her and had a photograph taken of her or like does he think she's playing some kind of game uh with him pretending to be this type of person fitting in and is he kind of going well i also do that so i applaud you for this may i compliment you on your eyes or does he not recognize her at all because he's had so many conquests and so many moments in his life that everybody else would be changed by and he may not be changed by it because the way he plays it is so interesting. He uh, he has this fascination with who this character of Lily is and Victor's doing a really bad job of covering up who her, what her past is, but he's just intrigued by who this person is that that's walked into his life. Yeah. Um, so I, I couldn't get from the episode and even from episode seven, which we'll be talking about next time. Um, even from episode seven, I couldn't get whether he knows that Lily is Brona and knows something has happened to her. Is it because they're kindred spirits in being supernatural or preternatural as they, as the two of them are. Yeah. Like um, he has with Vanessa, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of, but it, I, I think, you know, he certainly takes an interest. She grabs his attention. I, I did have, it's a new distraction. Mm-hmm. But I, I think whether it is because that that distraction is because he knows he's met her before and just because of how she's behaving as high society mm-hmm. um, that that intrigues him or whether you know he talks about um, the echoes of the past he goes your hands are cold that like the touch of marble mm-hmm. that yeah as you say then he feels there's something different about her yeah. uh, I, I thought it was really nice but I think that is the essence of Dorian he is distracted there is some new point of interest here and i i do like the way that it, it it's you know you see the the jealousy coming on angelique's face with the attention paid to lily yeah. especially you know he he thinks it's just a passing moment where dorian raises a toast to his beautiful angelique and then and especially a, a, a welcome to um Lily, oh yes, uh, Lily Frankenstein, yeah. and you know you, you felt s- that I, fe- I felt that moment you, when uh, when you have Angelique, who is supposed to be the center of this ball, yeah. giving a minor toast, saying congratulations, but also a massively special welcome yeah. well, to that's you, it. Lily. You know? Dorian trumps his own effusive sort of um, spotlight on Angelique by by 
ramping it up for Lily and, you know, that awkward moment with Victor, Vanessa, Lily, Dorian uh, and Angelique being there together, you really sense it. Um, there is this great moment where I think Victor and Angelique are left on the sidelines to drink, although mm-hmm. none for Victor, uh, and you just see Angelique kind of taking a very large swig of the, the champagne uh, <laughs> as she realises that something is happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that she is no longer the central focus for, yeah. for Dorian. So it's great social observation. I really, really enjoyed this, um, a lot. I think also just quickly coming back to Mr. Lyle and his protection for Vanessa. I think what's interesting about it, you know, I do think Mr. Lyle is playing both sides here because mm-hmm. we have a great, um, moment between Mr. Lyle and Evelyn Poole at her home uh, at the Witch's Coven, talking about beauty uh, and Mr. Lyle chips in with Anne's youth. Um, and it's a great moment from Helen McCorry here as she relates to beauty uh, and how uh, in the Renaissance uh, in in Venice, they would add belladonna, a poison that would dilate the, the pupils of the eye to simulate excitement. Uh, and what a s- sad way that this beauty each time to, to get the effect, you had to add more slowly poisoning uh, yourself. And she goes, what we won't do for beauty. And as I say, Mr. Loud chips in with youth. Um, and you get a really sad, melancholic sort of introspection from Helen Macquarie here, where her youth is granted because it takes more than a drop of poison. It takes everything. Yeah. Um, such a sad prize, such a price we have to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just has this moment of, I didn't turn from God, he turned from me. This seems like a curse in itself for her, yeah. uh, but something that she does because it is for the master and the master must be served, mm-hmm. must be obeyed uh, and must be uh, fawned upon at all this time. And yeah. You have this um, conversation between these two, uh, Mr. Lyle and Mrs. Poole. Mm-hmm. And it's just so, so good. Um, but again, Mr. Lyle is in her presence and and then is protecting Vanessa yeah. in in the ballroom Absolutely. or trying to. So I, I, I like his duplicity here, Mr. Lau, mm. because it's still not fully known, but he's certainly maintaining the relationship with the coven whilst probably um, undermining them with the company. Exactly. Yeah. I think he's using the knowledge that he has to help save the company. And that conversation he has with Evelyn Poole is echoed in the conversation he has with Hecate later on, where she's talking about her plans and saying, um, I'm very young. And Lyle responds with Evelyn, and so is she. She is as young as you are. And her response, Hecate's response to that is, for now. Um, I, I had a, a little touch of uh, Neil Gaiman's um, Stardust, the witches within that who are consuming the heart of stars to keep themselves youthful and they all fight amongst themselves as to who is going to get the largest part yes, of the heart to yeah. keep themselves young. And that's what this almost feels like with Hecate battling with her mother as to which one of them will remain youthful for the longest is what it feels like. So while Hecate looks like she's a young lady of you know mid-twenties kind of age, maybe even younger than that, and while Evelyn Poole looks like a lady in her 40s or, or early 50s kind of age group, we've talked before about references to uh, Evelyn Poole being eons old, as she described herself. Uh, Hecate most likely is 
hundreds of years old as well. But the two of them looking youthful is most likely to do with a lot of the rituals that they've been doing in in the coven. So, uh, so I do like this kind of battle, this idea of you know a girl being treated like a child by her mother, the leader of the coven, yeah. saying, I will rise and I will take my rightful place as leader of this coven at some point. So again, another little barbing of these of these conversations, which is always good in this show. While the ball is such a central part of this episode, there's just some interesting stuff going on with Ethan's storyline in this, in this episode. Uh, we're on episode six of the show now in, in season two. So uh, as the storyline of the werewolf rises within Ethan. I think it's good that there's some really interesting interactions for him uh, going on as well. You know, we have the conversation that goes on between Inspector Rusk and Ethan at the Waxwork Museum, which I just think is fabulous. Yeah, it's really um, good. This really interesting concept where Rusk is saying, well, the reason why I'm visiting is because that old adage of the murderer returns to the scene of his crime. Well, he may not return to the actual scene, but he may return right here. Isn't that right, Ethan? You know? Yeah, really pointedly. <laughs> so, so good, because we had the conversation in the previous episode where he knows that Ethan is involved. Somehow he may not know there's some supernatural element with inside Ethan that that drove him to kill everybody but he thinks he's the one that murdered everybody in this situation. Absolutely. I mean he um, actually you know it, it is that moment where he leans in to say I know you're involved I will find proof. Mm-hmm. Um, he is looking for that proof and he he has his target um, and you know he follows that up with better a quick hanging than the slow torture of guilt. Exactly. What a great line that is from Inspector Rusk. Yeah. Uh, I really really enjoy uh that uh, as well i think it's good that the putney's house of wax is um featuring so Mm -hmm. so much here it's also just a a note quickly because i i think how they're using putney's uh waxwork um is being used to underline uh, different points in in this show between Mm -hmm. the characters and i think here um, between Inspector Rusk and, and, and Ethan. It's really, really nicely done. I mean, we had it in the previous episode where he, he's called into Inspector Rusk's uh, office as well, where they have very much uh, a pointed conversation again. And mm-hmm. um, certainly Inspector Rusk does like to use his time in the Transvaal, um, and during the Boer War, um, as a, point of reference for how he approaches things Absolutely. Uh, in the previous episode it was with the loss of his arm where he says just to complete that story i had to go and find my arm in, in a room filled with other arms mm-hmm. just to see it and then i just tossed it back on the pile yeah, had to um, have closure in the story exactly yeah, he's the uh, kind of guy that will investigate forever uh, but the pressure still builds up throughout this episode for ethan because we have roper the pinkerton the person that inspector rusk has been trying to get the information out of for that attack on mariners in we see him arriving calling into the house i suppose i think at the end of episode five we saw that he was watching sir malcolm's house from outside this time he actually rings the doorbell and comes in and has a, another very pointed conversation with ethan now the only the only thing that stood out to me with this is the threats from Mr. Roper, given everything that Ethan has gone through, that this guy calls himself the devil and this guy says, you know, I can make it in through the windows of your house to kill any anybody that you love effectively. I'm not too sure whether that would work on Ethan. Remember what he's seen. You know, he's had he's had the vampires in season one where he's seen actual 
nests full of vampires that are willing to rip out your throat and kill you. He's had the visit from the nightcomers into his house. He's had the devil possessing Vanessa before. And this man who is effectively just a policeman from the, from America or a private investigator, I suppose, from America coming over, threatening him this way. I'm not too sure whether that threat really works on Ethan at all, you know. Um, and I think he's kind of trying to say to him, in a moment where you're not watching, if you don't do what I say, I'll find you. But Ethan's always watching, and so is everybody else in that house, always watching out for danger. So- that's, that's true, but I think the threat against Vanessa, where he calls out her mm-hmm. bedroom, uh, is one that Ethan does take on board. Yeah. I also just wondered whether it was Mr. Roper really kind of saying, I know what I saw, but I also know that you are a man, yeah. and you can be killed with simply a gun exactly you know that um you you may have this supernatural um be possessed with this supernatural ability uh, with this uh, magical ability however during the day you are simply a man uh, of which bullets of any type not simply a silver bullet Mm -hmm. uh, can be used to take you down although that is an interesting test that needs to be done (laughs) Um, does it still require a silver bullet when he's in the form of of a man maybe uh, which is kind of interesting Um, I I, I think Mr. Roper's makeup here uh, you know is just really nicely done it's you know how do you put this across that his face has been torn Mm -hmm. away um, and, you know, the mask, the leather mask, this kind of rudimentary, probably high tech for its time to, to, um, sort of cover the scarring, but probably also to help, uh, it to heal better. Yeah. Um, they, they look like they've put in false teeth to give him so this overbite that goes to the size of where he's had the, the wounds and the, the, the most attack uh, yeah. on, on the, uh, I think the right side of his face mm-hmm. um, and just that bloody eye, you know, so in, in his own way, he looks freakish and supernatural. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of really like that makeup. Yeah, there's even the comment from him where he says, I was smiling at that thing. It's very difficult for me to tell whether I'm emoting properly under this quarter inch thick of leather mask that I have to get used to wearing now. You know, it's a very, uh, very conscious point from Mr. Roper that look what you did to me. I will do far worse to you unless you follow my direction. So it does seem in here that Ethan is making the decision to get out of London. Uh, once again, we started the season with him saying he was going to go on the run into into Europe to get away from everything that he's done. Um, but six episodes into the season here, we're getting these threats that feel like he may follow the directions from Roper in here. I just wondered if his threats would roll off Ethan's back like water off a duck's back, you know? Yeah, well, <laughs> Cause, absolutely. Because there's, you know... The actual devil has been in his home before. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Don't say, I'm a devil, I can get in through the window. He's seen that. Um, but then it, the, the story culminates, I think you mentioned it already, really the major points of uh, of what happens with within the cellar. Uh, Ethan bringing in Simbene into his true nature, I suppose, because nobody else knows about this. Nobody else no. within that household knows that this happens to Ethan, that he becomes a werewolf every full moon. Um, I did like, I did, didn't notice it the first time I watched the episode, but I did notice it the second time. Um, I did like the idea that Vanessa asks Ethan to come to the ball on Friday night and he goes, oh, sugar, what day's Friday? Oh, that's full moon night. Can't do it that night. Got other plans. <laughs> Which I just thought was interesting because he looks like he's really letting her down. You know, you mentioned how, I suppose how much it would have stood out that Vanessa arrived on her own without any escort at all. And the reason she did is because 
Ethan has to take care of his uh, his supernatural um, possession once a month, effectively. Yeah, so. I find it really interesting he brings Sam Bene mm-hmm. in. In the moment of episode six, absolutely, they're going... I hope he's put that chair far enough back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I hope the the chains and the bindings hold. Um, I thought it was really nicely reminiscent of Mister Fenton, as I was saying, mm-hmm. uh, with with the the moonlight coming through. Absolutely. Um, and I do like the change where you see kind of the bones cracking in his hand mm-hmm. as they they turn more lupine. I suppose. Yes. I would um, want to have had a bit more instruction if I was Simbene. Definitely. Come down here, sit in this chair, chain me up to the wall, don't move the chair a couple of inches forward, and, <laughs> you know, you leave it there. Yeah. If you want to move a couple of inches back, you're welcome. Um, and you, know, you must stay and well, you sit You must stay there. and watch and see what happens. I suppose, you know, there is the argument that um, Ethan doesn't know exactly what happens. He doesn't have much memory of the things that he's done. He knows when he wakes up covered in blood, and he knows something terrifying and terrible is happening to him but um he knows that he's probably a werewolf but doesn't know what it looks like to other people and doesn't know how vicious he can get i yeah. suppose so maybe that's the reason why i didn't explain it to uh to Sambene with a few more words but come downstairs sit in that chair while i'm chained to the wall and watch me all night not enough for me i would need a little <laughs> bit more <laughs> well as he lunges at Sambene, oh, Sambene wow. doesn't stay on the chair no. And is there with his fists up. And I'm not entirely sure that a boxing stance <laughs> would be uh, adequate protection yes. against uh, this werewolf. Uh, but certainly I think, um, you know, it goes nicely into episode seven. Mm-hmm. And I think it's nice that it's Ethan who trusts uh, and tells Sembene, uh, given their own relationship. You know, I think Ethan connects in with Sembene around the Native American Indians and the the spiritual um, culture of yeah. the uh, Native American Indians uh, in the same way. Uh, and that grounding with the environment, with the earth, that I think uh, we're assuming here that Sembene's African tribes as well also have as well that mm. that closeness to um their their landscape their environment yeah. and the the spiritual plane connected in with animals uh and plants yeah. rather than um the machines that we see in the industrial revolution and, yeah, and science so I, I think that's a real nice connection here it although is. of all the secrets to be told um you kind of go, oh, that's great. Yeah, I'll do that. But then for it to be that, I, you know, I think soiled knickers have been mentioned previously <laughs> and all are to be mentioned yeah. um, in the, the this set of, of episodes. Well, I am sure Sembene, certainly if I was in Sembene's uh, shoes, uh, soiled knickers would be um, <laughs> certainly something that would be happening to me. Yes, definitely, definitely. Hopefully we'll get a bit more detail behind Sembene himself as to uh, his background and his history. Another character we don't know much about, but I love his uh, static or nature or stoicism uh, as he deals with everything yeah. that's going on. He's very uh, he's very uh, good at dealing with problems and situations, isn't he? Uh, I think that's a good place to leave our discussion about episode six. Any notes that we haven't talked about in the episode, John? Just to say that we do get a fetish of Sir Malcolm, Mm -hmm. which is made by uh, Evelyn Poole. She takes a locket of her that she then attaches to this doll. um, And uh, just 
starts the old chicken heart that she's taken presumably from another uh, poor, unfortunate toddler um, and gets that started up. uh, And then she um, gives this fetish a good old kiss on the lips as well. So um, certainly here, um, you know, given what we saw uh, with Gladys, you know, you do worry about Sir Malcolm, but maybe it's to simply alter his personality his character that we see in this with uh him being informed of um gladys's death yeah. to be one that is very much um sort of pro evelyn paul it yeah. is to undermine the company maybe. maybe so it's not maybe a fetish designed with his death in mind but mm-hmm. one uh to make sure that he without him knowing it is powerless and is working for them yeah. uh, rather than for the company. Absolutely. I was wondering, given the accuracy of each of these fetishes, each of these dolls, uh, to the look of each of the, of the characters that they're supposed to be portraying, you know, I wondered whether the fetish would stop working now that Malcolm has shaved his beard, considering the fetish does have a beard and Malcolm doesn't anymore. <laughs> you know, I did wonder that much myself. How you need to change yeah. your, your look for it to stop working? Can yeah. you cut your hair off or dye it and suddenly it stops, it stops I, its influence? <laughs> absolutely. I wondered that myself. As Evelyn said, I've banished the bear to the cave uh, and, the, the and brought out the cub. Exactly. Great. Really nice. Yeah. Uh, I think the only other note I have is just the opening. I just think this is a really great horror opening. Oh, yeah. Um, with the maid seeing Gladys's blood coming from underneath the door to mm-hmm. the master bedroom. Um, I think what is great here is that it does put away a lot of the tropes here. We still get that lovely bone-chilling scream, but we do not get the crash of the tray. She puts the tray down uh, to scream, which I think, um, you know, she as a maid is always thinking of the fine bone china don't crack the china China, it will come from my wage so i really like this uh, moment i thought it was a a great horror trope but just that little touch of the maid placing the tray down Mm -hmm. on the sideboard before she enters into the room um was a nice touch absolutely well i did criticize ethan uh when he was investigating the nightcomers uh in the walls he'd seen something out of the corner of his eye was still carrying the coffee tray that he uh obviously drops to the floor as he gets attacked so uh, this is a maid this is a person that knows her job and knows exactly what she should be doing if anything yes. scary might possibly happen. don't break the china exactly but i love that that just rolls straight into the opening credits so it does feel like those episodes back in season one, the, the I think it was episode one and three that had the murders at the beginning of the episode leading into the uh, the opening credits. So this feels like that kind of horror moment as uh, as it starts off the episode as well. That's it for our discussions on Penny Dreadful season two, episode six. We'll be back next week with our discussion about season two, episode seven, Little Scorpion. <laughs> <laughs> 